Uh, I will pray for us and we will dig into the Bible, which is good. Um, King Jesus, we do thank you for today. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you uh, for this building that we've been able to meet in, for the blessing we've been able to be here. And just pray, Lord God, that you would allow us to uh, continue to bless Wallingford. You'd bless uh, Solid Ground and Family Works that we've worked with and help us to be light in the darkness and Finney to bring the good news of your gospel there, Jesus, and that you would just help us in this time uh, and that we'd make much of your name, God, as a church as we do this. Please help us today, God. Uh, lead and guide the text. Uh, lead and guide uh, the sermon, Holy Spirit. Uh, make it about Jesus and not about me and the things that are just of me. I just pray they'd be forgotten and, and lost. Um, but the things that are just so clearly from you would make our hearts sing, which would just light our hearts on fire for the worship of you, Jesus, to love you, God, and to love other people, uh, to serve our city, to love our city, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city. Uh, Jesus, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. We will be in Hebrews chapter 8. Is my microphone on? It is. Hey, look at that. Good times. All right, we're in Hebrews chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. Um, I'll set my timer so we can get out of here before the next blizzard. Um, in a given week, the main point of my job, the main thing that I do, uh, the thing that I think is my primary responsibility, I have many different responsibilities working for the church, but the thing that is most important to me is the sermon that I bring here on Sunday. It is coming to God's word and bringing uh, God's word to God's people. And as I do that, what is so crucial about it is that I don't come to the text with an agenda, a rant, or any other thing, but the, the, the aim of my week is to come to the text and see what God has for our church, not what I've got for our church, or what I think is clever, or what I think is interesting, or, or whatever is just bugging me that week. Uh, the, the, the most important part about what I do is to come to the text and to get the main point, uh, uh, because the Bible uh, in totality is about Jesus and his redeeming work in the universe, which is the most important thing of anyone's life, is to hear that news, and as disciples of Jesus, to, to take it in, and to live it, and to breathe it. And so, the point of my week is to come to the text that God's appointed for us, and to ask not what do I think it's about, or because the text doesn't have two like contradictory meanings. It's got one meaning. It's, got, it's technically got two authors, the big A author, God, and the little A author, the person that wrote it, that God used to write it, that God superintended. And I think that that guy, the guy who wrote Hebrews, for example, had at one point, he didn't have two diametrically opposing points from the same text, right? Now, so the, the whole thing is that I'm trying to get in here and, and prayerfully consider and ask and study, God, what is the point of this text? The good news for this week, because it's been a snowpocalypse, it says right here in verse 1 of chapter 8, now the point in what we are saying is this. That makes my job easy for the week. Does not usually happen. Now the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. And we're coming back to this idea of Jesus as the high priest has been, and has been shown uh, in, in, this, in this book, this beautiful book, Hebrews, again and again and again. You have these uh, Jewish folks who've seen Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. They've come and put their faith and trust in him. And then as time is going on, they're kind of saying, you know, that old stuff was kind of cool. And, and it really felt crunchy and tangible. Uh, this whole gospel thing, uh, eh. You know, God came down for me, yeah, that's good. But I do this other stuff, and it feels tangible. I can wrap my mind around it. I can, I can tangibly say, this thing is for this sin and deals with this. Whereas the gospel is Jesus Christ has paid the price for all your sins. And there's nothing you can do to earn. He's done it all. 
And, and they begin to come back. And he's saying, hey, remember Jesus. Remember this amazing Jesus, this amazing high priest. And specifically, specifically, today we're going to talk about the power of the new covenant that he has made. Um, so I'll just go ahead and dig in. We'll talk about how awesome Jesus is. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, the thing about it is, is that we don't spend a lot of time talking about covenants and high priests. That's not really, uh, I mean, I'm a theology nerd, so I talk about priests and covenants and things on a regular basis. But most of us don't like talk about priests and covenants at the sev dog when we're getting a slurpee or whatever, right? It doesn't come up as much. Um, but when it says high priest, Hebrews has shown us two amazing things about this high priest. One, that Jesus Christ is God himself who's come down for us. And I think in Seattle, it's so important that we make this distinction that the gospel is not the message of religion. Religion is, I do X, Y, or Z to be right in the universe or to get right with God or to earn myself some good karma or to pay it forward or whatever it might be. But the gospel message is there's nothing I can do to do those things. But God himself had to come down and rescue me. That God loved me first and came and got me in the person of Jesus. That God made me right in the universe and that's why I'm right in the universe because of what he's done. Right? And so that's a big part of it. That's a big part of the high priest thing that we saw last week, that he came down for us. Now, the other thing is really, really emphasized, and particularly in chapter 3, as we saw, just to kind of catch you guys up, it's not just that he came down, but that God himself became a human being and was made like us in every way. It says in Hebrews that he was made like us in every way, but knew no sin, so that he could be made a faithful high priest. He had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he could relate to us, to his brothers and sisters, that he could relate to us as human beings. So you don't bring anything to Jesus and say, this is something that Jesus didn't deal with. He did. And so it's not a distant help, it's a near help, because where we are, he was here on earth, and he was a human being. And so when we see high priest, that's what we're thinking about. Um, He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, the Lord set up, not Man. Uh, We've been referring to Psalm 110 because Hebrews refers to it again and again and again and again. And Psalm 110 tells us that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand uh, uh, of the majesty on high. Uh, And it says this word that he sat down, which in in Jewish custom, when you sit down, if you're in the the city gates where everyone stands, you come in, you say what you got to say. And when you sit down, you're like, I'm done. Boom. And so Jesus came. He died on the cross, he rose from the dead to save people from themselves, and he sat down, boop, because he's done. So that's what it means, right? Uh, and now what's cool here is uh, he's this minister in the holy place in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So Jesus, he says in John's gospel, I'm going to make a place for you. And there are many rooms in my father's house. And the King James, I think, says mansions, but regardless, He's going to make a place for us with God forever. That is the end of the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and it's not that we have to make it for ourselves that we do it, because what did it say here? It's really clear that the Lord has set it up, and then he goes the extra mile to say, not man. It's not human beings that have done this. It's God who's doing this, and God who's at work, and God who's making a place. And and, and so we on earth try and find our home in so many places. The approval of others comfort, money, power, objectification, whatever we do, we treat human beings like they're not human beings in one way, shape, or form or another. We do all this stuff, and in that we seek a home. And the thing it turns out is every time that comes up empty. Uh, I was just having a conversation this morning about Brewster's Millions. 
you've ever seen this fine film with Richard Pryor, I, don't watch it because I don't know, I haven't seen it in so long, and it, don't like, go home and watch it, please. And you're like, why did you send me? It might be horrible, it might be not something you want to watch. You know? um, but the whole plot is, is his dad dies and says, here, you can have this giant inheritance, but to get the giant inheritance, you have to spend so much money that you're sick of spending money. He wanted to make sure, though it's not a Christian film, right? Uh, he wanted to make sure the guy knew that his home was not in money, his comfort was not in money, and that money wouldn't do it. And we try and find comfort and home and a place in the universe again and again and again and again. But the reality is, as human beings, we're built to find our home in God. We're built to find our home in Jesus. And the end game is to be at home with Jesus forever. And it's God who does that, not man. And this is good news. This is, this is what makes the bumper-to-bumper traffic. You come back to reality and you stop grumbling. You realize this is, this is short. This is momentary. God is putting the world back the way it's supposed to be, where I get to be with Jesus face-to-face forever. And he did all that. It was God who did that, not man. Praise the Lord. For every high priest, now he's back to the old high priests here. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Uh, He's emphasizing again that the human priests that they're leaning on are just human beings. Uh, He set up this whole system in God's grace and mercy. The old covenant system, God made a clear way. Here's how you live. This is how you're right with me. Uh, The wage of sin, we're told in Romans, is death. That that our trying to find our home in something else, whether it's good things or bad things, uh, is death. It all leads to death. It all leads to emptiness. It all leads to our eventual demise. And God said, okay, so I'm making a way for you to pay for that. The problem is everybody's got to pay for it again and again and again. And so you bring these critters, but the guy's got to bring his critter first, and you've got to bring your critter. And what he's saying is he's a human being just like you. He's a stand-in. He's not the guy that makes you righteous. He's just the, the minister that's helping administer the system by which God set up, the Old Testament system, the critter system. I will write a book called The Critter System. on the old, No, I'm not going to. I'm stopping because now I get, off, I get off my outline, and I start talking about critters, and the next thing you know... Here we go. Uh, back to verse 3. For every high, uh, four. Now, if, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. There are guys who can do that. Because this is written before the temple's destroyed in 70 AD. Um, is what I believe anyway. Some people will argue with me that. Good, godly, biblical people. But I, I don't think so. I think it's written before the temple's destroyed. It's like, yeah, you've got that other thing. That thing where you have to keep going and going and going and... The priests keep going and going and going. But God brought this other thing, this true forgiveness that washes us clean permanently, the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived the life we were supposed to live, died the death we deserved so we can be free in him forever. So don't waste your time with the other thing. And I think this is one of those moments where it's really easy for us to say, well, isn't that nice for these first century Palestinian folks to to be so uh, archaic and waste their time with religion and making themselves right you ever try and make yourself right with God from the actions that you do? Try and pay him God back for his forgiveness and for his mercy in our own lives? Yes, we do that on a regular basis, and we need to be freed from it. You can't read your Bible to heaven. I mean, you can read the Bible and meet Jesus and become a Christian and get to heaven because he came down for you. But your entrance into the kingdom of God is not how many pages out of your Bible you read this morning. 
Your entrance into the kingdom of God isn't how many orphans or widows you feed. Uh, Your entrance into the kingdom of God is not the right things you do, though we're responding to Jesus when we do those things. They're right and good things to do. He's shown us so so much mercy. You cannot take the mercy that God has shown us and not be merciful back to other people, right? You can say, well, I, I, I know, and I'm stealing this patently from Jonathan Edwards, footnote. So you can say, yeah, I know Jesus was merciful to me, and I didn't deserve any of it, and he's been gracious and kind to me. I just, it's hard for me to be merciful and kind to other people. What Jonathan Edwards is going to say, I think he's going to say it rightly, is, well, if, you, if that's the case, then you don't actually know how merciful Jesus Christ has been to you. If you don't respond by loving other people, you don't understand how much Jesus Christ has loved you. If you have trouble welcoming people in, you don't understand how much Jesus has welcomed you in. Uh, If you have trouble forgiving others in that moment, you don't understand how much he's forgiven you. If you have trouble being generous to others, you don't understand how you've been given everything in Jesus. So yes, you might have the intellectual knowledge in your head that Jesus has been merciful to me because I'm a Christian and I didn't deserve any of it. But if you cannot be merciful to others in that moment, you don't understand his mercy. You don't understand his love. That's just Jonathan Edwards, but he just got it from the Bible, so check. So he wants them to be free from that religious impulse. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. They are a foretaste. Okay, so... God in Christ, and this is one of the big things that is trying to be emphasized here in Hebrews, he has changed the way that he relates to his people in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is really clear. We're all saved the same way. We're all saved by Jesus Christ. Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, Old Covenant people, New Covenant people are all saved by Jesus, but the way the relationship is administered is differently. And the thing about that that thing is it's always progressive, it always gets better and better and better and better and actually gets more and more and more and more like Genesis 1 and 2 as it goes. So um, in the Old Covenant, one guy gets to go one time a year to offer sacrifices to the people to enter into the presence of God. Uh, They have sacrifices to be right with God. They get to be a people who get to live right with God because of the system that's administrated. And now, as he's trying to point out and make really, really clear to them, here in the New Covenant... There was one sacrifice once and for all. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell inside of us. We've been given new hearts. And the relationship we have with God is completely unfettered. Uh, it's progressive. It's getting better. And eventually we're told that we get to, we see him like a, like a foggy mirror right now. And someday we get to see him clearly. We get to see him face to face. Which is, by the way, different. <laughs> that is a different administration that we are currently living in. And it is better. And it's progressing towards that. These shadows, these old things, as we'll see, is is pointing forward to that thing. For when Moses, Moses, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he went in, uh, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern uh, that was shown you on the mountain. That's a direct quote from uh, Exodus 25 and 27 that gets kind of chopped up, but there it is. So it's right from the Bible. The instructions that Moses was given, here's the pattern, this is what you do, this is how you make it. Verse 6, uh, but as it is, Christ, if you're in the ESV, I think it's a hymn if you're in a different Bible to try and make it clear which Christ we're talking about, has obtained a ministry or a hymn, not which Christ, which hymn we're talking about, uh, has obtained a ministry 
that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So there's three things at work here. There's promises, there's the covenant, and there's the priest in one little sense. So he's trying to say the high priest that is God himself in the flesh who came to take, who not only came to die for your sin, but was even the sacrifice that he offered to pay the price for your sin, to wash you completely clean forever and ever, to live with him forever. How much better is he than the guy who just shows up to to take care of that critter for you again and again? A lot better. Likewise, the covenants, covenant with all its ordinances, the new covenant that we'll read in a second, is that much better The relationship we have with God now in 2014 is better. I mean, imagine, I mean, we're supposed to have our minds blown by this, right? So the relationship that we have with God now through Jesus is better than people who had God's manifest presence in a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. Our relationship, you know, sometimes I heard a, I would like to say it was a famous theologian, but it was just a line in a, in a rap song that said, uh, you know, we want our lives to be like Elijah, and so often they're more like Ruth, and if you know those two books, Elijah's like, stuff happening, and, you know, fire coming down from heaven and lighting sacrifices on fire, and Ruth is a story about faithful people who follow God, who God uses to progress the history of redemption. And frankly, sometimes our lives are a little more like that, you're, you're on God's trajectory, and if you're a Christian, you're part of God's story. He's using you as an ambassador to a lost world to spread the good news of his son, to be light in the darkness. This is who you are. He says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, and in John 5, 14, you are the light of the world because he's the head and we're the body, and we're that linked to him, and that's how he's using you in the world right now. And frankly, sometimes when you get up and you go to work or you get on the bus or you're shopping with your kids or you're changing diapers, you don't feel like the light of the world. You don't feel like you're having these big-time experiences, but what we're supposed to understand is what God's doing with us in 2014 is bigger than what he was doing with Elijah, how is that even possible? We'll see. The promises are better. The promises are better. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If that whole temple thing was good to go, that would have been enough. Now he says something very interesting in verse 8 when we slow down and read it carefully. For he finds fault with them. I thought we were talking about a covenant. Why does it say it? Why does it say them? I thought the covenant was the problem. See, the covenant's enacted by God, who's holy, right, just, and perfect. Not middle school God and high school or college or grad school God, Old Testament, New Testament, right? He's not a moody teenager in, in, in middle school. And then he's, I don't know why it would be high school, because, you know, I don't know. I don't know that that's necessarily better. I think it depends on the person, right? <laughs> Maybe it's just me and the high schoolers and the middle schoolers I interact with. But it's a grad school God or whatever. It's not. It's the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the I am. He's the one. Um, and so he made that covenant. So what's the problem with the covenant? For he finds fault with them when he says Them. Uh, them is us, by the way. Uh, them was them. It's a different them, but 
But regardless, we are not necessarily different from them. The, the gospel is an interesting proposal because the gospel, uh, oftentimes I've heard people say things like the gospel starts with bad news and then there's good news. I actually think it goes more like good news, bad news, good news. Uh, the good news is the character and nature of God who is being. God is holy. God is right. God is just. God is beautiful. God is perfect. God is gracious. God is love. Uh, God is just and will never let injustice go undealt with. God will never let bloodshed. He will never let objectification. He won't let people be nasty to people forever. He will not let it go unaccounted for. That's really good. Justice is good. God is good. God, I mean, God is love. Love isn't God, but God is love. The, the God is wonderful and all light, no dark, all these just amazing, amazing stuff. Now here's the problem. Sometimes we look straight at that and say, I want something else to be God in my life. Uh, we look straight at that and say, you know, I know that the gospel says that that God came to justify me, but I'm going to try and justify myself. If I can just work harder, then God will love me. And we, we treat him like he's our boss and not like he's our dad, right? Um, we do idolatry, right? We take something he made and we make it ultimate in our life. We make it the thing that we can't live without. And in so doing, whether that's a little carving of a pretend God or any other thing from a couch to TV to job to work to success to power to acceptance to whatever it might be, we make that thing our ultimate thing and we need that thing and that's the thing that's going to make us right in the universe. Not him. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to save us and give us life because that life is death and he came to bring us life and forgive us for our sins and make us his own. And there's nothing we can do to earn it. He did it all. And he's that good. Because here's the problem. For he finds fault with them. Because we're going to talk about the Old Testament. Now here's the thing about the Old Testament. With a number of rules and details... No one can say God didn't tell them how to do it. I'm God. You're my people. This is what it looks like to display me to the universe. This looks like what it, what it is to follow me. This looks like what it is to obey me. This was what it looks like to trust me. God didn't hide it from them. I mean, even Adam and Eve. Do whatever. Stay away from that tree. Do whatever. That tree. He wasn't, it wasn't like they were like, oh, we found this tree. He's like, okay, you guys got to get out of here. What? I just, you said eat all the trees, and we found this tree. It was cool. He made it clear. Old Testament, he makes it clear. Now, what's the problem with them in this situation? Have you read Exodus or Deuteronomy? What's the problem with them? The problem is with them is they always find something else to worship. They find something better to do than follow Jesus. They find something else. That's what's the problem with them. And frankly, that's the problem with me, apart from Christ. Now, in this, we're going to hear how they treated him, but also how he treated them. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Uh, this phrase in and of itself has uh, a future connotation if you didn't get it. Behold, the days are coming, right? Yeah, that's future. But that would tip off Old Testament saints to, oh, we're talking about the day that God is coming to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. Through his Messiah, this promised one, and he's going to fulfill all these promises. Uh, it's another way, uh, in the day of the Lord, all these kind of phrases in around this thing. The day of the Lord is coming, or the, the day, the day of the Lord, or behold, blah, 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 blah. 
There's two big phrases, and there's one of them. Behold, the days are coming. And the other one is in the day of the Lord. Uh, and so immediately here, this is a quote from, this is almost an exact quote from Jeremiah 31 through 34, though there's a couple sentences missing out, and we'll talk about those. Uh, but you can find them. You have them in Jeremiah 35, 30, 31, 31 through 34. Uh, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Now, the Old Testament people are waiting for the kingdom of God to arrive. The kingdom's an interesting thing because before there was a kingdom in Israel and Judea, or in Judah, um, they went to God and said, hey, we want a king like everybody else has. Everybody else has a king. We want a king. And God said, "Um, I'm your king. Didn't didn't you know that that I'm your king? They're like, no, 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 no. We want a real king. God, we can't even see you. We need a real king. He's fine. I'll give you a real king. He's not going to treat you well. It's not going to go well for you, and you're not going to like it. And they get Saul, uh, which... You can read 1 Samuel when you go home today, the whole thing in many chapters on how bad of a king Saul was, uh, but I'll tell you, he did what human kings do. He took power, he got greedy, he got selfish, and it turns out he used his position in a way that was not good because he didn't honor God, and it went really, really poorly, and so God said, I'll give you a new king, his name's David, who does better, but it kind of goes south for him too, And then his son, Solomon, it goes really south. And then pretty much from there, it goes, until it's gone. But there was this promise. I'm going to come and I'm going to put it back. God's going to be king again. The kingdom is coming when God is king again, when it's the way it should have been, the way you guys had it, and it was awesome. Now, if you've been part of our church for any period of time, you've probably heard me use the phrase, now and not yet. The kingdom is now and not yet. The thing about now and not yet, it all depends where you're standing. So if you're an Old Testament saint in Jeremiah 31 hearing this, it's all not yet. It's all coming. There's these big, big promises that God is going to fulfill. Now, if you're standing before the cross as one of Jesus' disciples, and John's boys come up and say, hey, John's in jail, and he said, uh, he wants to know if you're the Messiah, or if we should look for another one, and he says, blind people see, and the poor have good news preached to them. Go tell them. He's just quoting Isaiah, saying, hey, the promises are here. The kingdom is now, in Mark's gospel, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is amongst you. Now, the thing is, when he died on the cross and ascended to heaven, that kingdom didn't disappear. In fact, it continues, like I said, to progress until we get to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, Jesus is risen from the dead, and the Holy Spirit's poured out on us, and the whole relationship between us and God changes. But we'll get to that good stuff in a second. Now, where you stand, so then if you're standing in... Uh, Jesus' ministry, the kingdom's now and there's a lot to be not yet. If you're standing at Pentecost, the kingdom is still now. It's even more now than it was a second ago because the Holy Spirit's here, but there's still not yet promises. And even these promises are going to have now effects and not yet effects because we live now in the kingdom of God and yet there's this thing coming. And he hasn't wiped every tear from every eye just yet. But he will. He hasn't come and vindicated the righteous as he will. But he will, and he has, but he will in such a clear and profound way. He's going to come back, and he's going to clear his name. And the kingdom will be for real now. It'll be all now at some point in time. So anyways, let's keep going. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Uh, If you don't come from a Jewish background, 
You are what's called an, a wild olive branch. You have been grafted into the family that he's talking about. And so this is referring to you as well. And someday, Romans tells us, there's going to be a revival where people who believe the Torah are going to read it and say, Jesus is Hamashua. He is the Messiah. And there's going to be a mass revival amongst those people. And, and this is going to be true. And then, but that's coming. And that's going to be a glorious, glorious day. And if for some reason you're here and you have a Jewish background of any kind, and you're just checking this Jesus guy out, maybe you heard something about him that he might be the Messiah or whatever, my Hebrew is really, really, really horrible. But I'll open an interlinear with English and Hebrew and talk to you about Jesus and the Tanakh and what it says there. So if that's you, please, let's talk, because there's a lot of really cool stuff in here, like Isaiah 53 and a bunch of other stuff. In fact, the whole thing points to Jesus as the Messiah, but I digress. Um, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them uh, by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Uh, the other stuff that's going to be in Jeremiah 31 that they would have been really familiar with and would have come right to mind is that God's going to say, even though I was, was their husband, and they weren't faithful to me. That's the problem with the them in it. I mean, the prophets, Jeremiah 31, is in the life of Jeremiah the prophet. And the prophets come and say, God is good, and you are not being faithful to him. Return. There's a bunch of prophets. You get into your Bible, there's a bunch of prophets, these prophetic books, and they all pretty much have the same theme. God is good, and you're not being faithful to him. He's a good husband. Be a faithful bride to him, collectively talking about the people of God. And that gets more and more accented in the New Testament, that Jesus is the, the husband and we, the church, are his bride, um, which is just so important. And that even, that even Christian marriage, we have this chance to model that relationship that Jesus has with the church as, as husbands live as these servant-hearted leaders. And to be a servant and a leader in your home isn't just to say that you'll deal with a home intrusion or something like that, but to say that you'll, you'll lay everything aside to help your family, specifically your wife, to follow Jesus and to wash her in the word and help her to see Jesus and everything. Football, video games, hobbies, Whatever. I'm not saying don't have them, but those are all so secondary to your job of serving your family. Jesus Christ served the church and gave his life up for them. Now, here's our, here's our issue, right? Though I was their husband, I mean, God, God in Exodus. I mean, you want to talk about the beautiful character of God. God comes for Israel not because they are awesome. He'll even say, I came and got you because you're weak. He came and rescued people who were enslaved to the hegemonic superpower of the world. And it says they heard their cries. They came and got him. He's a rescuer. That's who he is. And he even says, I, he makes it clear so often, like, I did this so everyone knows that the unjust hegemonic superpower didn't get bested. You didn't trick them. You didn't side with somebody else. You didn't get on with the Hittites and have a war. I came and got you when you had nothing so everyone would know my character and concern for the weak and the downtrodden and the small. It's the character of God. 
That's why it's good for you to understand that you and I are weak and downtrodden and small. Um, and yet he says you, didn't, you weren't faithful to me. And, and I think one of our problems with faithfulness is oftentimes we, oftentimes we pick what we think should be faithful uh, when we read our Bibles. Uh, and like I said earlier, it's so important in Seattle that we define sin rightly. Uh, because when you just say sin, people think, oh, not wiling out. You Christians don't want anybody to wile out. And they fill in the blank, whatever that wiling out might be, right? But sins are active, rebellion against God and other people, hurting other people, hurting God, uh, actively working against God and his purposes, actively doing whatever we want to do, disregarding human beings, objectifying human beings, treating them not as people but as objects and the things that get us to our own comfort and desires in the world. Yeah, it is that. But it's also every time we throw ourselves a parade for doing good, every time we say, I am right in the universe because I've done good here, or, hey, everybody, look at me. I took care of my neighbor just like I was supposed to do. Throw me a parade. Yay! Or omission. You see someone who needs help? I mean, if you, if you follow the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's all sins of omission. They see a guy who's beat up who needs help, and they walk around him. It's, it's helpful for my illustration, but it's cold outside in Seattle. There's a lot of cold people in Seattle. We help Family Works, right? We, we supply their diapers. We supply the diapers to families in this neighborhood for people who cannot afford diapers. Man, God's been so gracious to us. How could we not? If you've ever dealt with a, I mean, if you've ever dealt with a diaper, there are some of these families that do one diaper a day because they can't afford anything else. If you've never had a diaper situation, that is not good. It's horrific. And it's not that I'm like, here's the picture and get sad, but, but the reality is, is that we can help. It's not that big a deal to pick up some pampers at QFC. We can actually help them. And granted, as we see even in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus, there's, there's hurting people and we need to go. I know, I, I got to go and I got to preach the gospel because there's nothing better than people being reconciled to God. But Jesus is not d- unconcerned with those diapers, by the way. He's concerned for the souls of the city of Seattle and he's concerned about the diapers on the babies. And that's why it's so important when we look at this idea of faithfulness that we can pick and choose how we don't want to do one of those things. We can pick on picking on one kind of idol or one kind of sin well, we're into mercy. We don't really care about morality. We're into mercy because that's what we care about. Guess what? Mercy is morality. But, but it's not just being kind to the downtrodden. It's walking in holiness with Jesus. It's honoring Jesus as God, right? And it's not just picking a sin. Uh, we, don't, we don't like lust, so we'll yell about that one. But mm, money... No one likes it when we talk about money and using money for comfort and when money's your God. Or you flip it around. It kind of just depends whatever church you're in. Sometimes we, we pick and we choose where we're going to be faithful. Uh, we are about Bible exegesis. We will open up the Bible and make sure that you understand the parsing on the Hebrew uh, noun, vowel, stem, call, blah, 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 blah. But we won't actually do anything. Because you know it says in the Bible... They'll know you're my disciples from the way that you can tell the difference between the parsing on an aorist and a perfect tense Greek verb. But it's not just we're going to be the love people and not the doctrine people. We believe the Bible and every word of it. And because we believe it, we love. 
You've got to have both. Right? It's both and. Just like in marriage, you know, mar- marital fidelity is spiritual, it's physical, it's emotional. If you fail on one of those, you're not faithful. Right? Well, yeah, I'm physically faithful, but not emotionally, right? Whatever, who cares? He wants it all because he's God. He wants all of your faithfulness. He wants you to love people and love his word and trust him and believe his promises. He wants your holiness and your concern for the downtrodden and the weak. He wants it all. And he's God. Now, here's the cool thing about this. Hear how he treats them, the them, the unfaithful them. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds or into the, to their hearts, because this is they're using the Septuagint. Eh, to get technical, if you go back and you read Jeremiah, you're going to say it says, well, it says hearts, and there's weird quotation stuff, which if I had more time, I would nerd out and unpack for you. If you have questions about it, feel free to ask me, okay? I know it's my job, but... We also got to get home someday. Um, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds, his Torah, his teaching, who he is and what he's doing in the world and universe. I will put it in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. Now, this is either the reality that, that at, the, at this point in time, uh, the Holy Spirit's the one who does the convicting and the teaching, and we're just the conduits for this, or this is a future reality. That when we're face-to-face with Jesus, turns out you don't need preachers. I'm retired in the kingdom of God. Um, all you need me to do is say, hey, Jesus is down that way. Hey, everybody, Jesus is down that way. Let's go hang out with Jesus. That's what I'm going to do in the kingdom, right? Let's see what Jesus says about Jeremiah 31. I'm curious. Let's go ask him. That's my job in the kingdom. Praise the Lord. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Yeah, I think that's future. Uh, But people are divided on it, so there it is. But I think it's future. Um, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. And now imagine you're in this room with Jesus at Passover, and Jesus picks up a cup of wine and says, this is my blood poured out for you. This is a sign of the new covenant. And everyone stops and says, the new covenant's here. You know what he's saying when he says that? Who gets to make covenants with God's people? God. Yahweh. The God of the Bible manifest in the flesh came and said, this is what I'm coming to do. It's time, boys. It's time. It's the covenant. It's time. He didn't say it that way, but that's probably what I've been saying. You know, let's do it, you know. Not if I was Jesus, but if I was one of the disciples, which I'm a disciple, but not a disciple. Yeah. Yeah. I'll stop there. But it's t- I mean, can you imagine you're in this room with a fairly humble feast in this room after Jesus said, hey, go ask a guy and get a, give me a donkey and he'll give you a donkey and go ask a dude for a room and we'll get one. And you're there in this room and Jesus said, this is the new covenant. It's time. Everything's going to change This is what he does in our unfaithfulness. He comes to live the life that we can't because we can't. 
And God takes that life instead of our unfaithful one. And he comes to die in our place for our sins to make us right, to give us life. He died to give us life, even though we have been unfaithful. Before I was a Christian, goodness gracious, I was an enemy of God. I hated Christians, and I hated Jesus, and Jesus came and saved me for myself. Talk about unfaithful. I was unfaithful, and he came to save me. He came to rescue me. That's what he's doing to them, to the unfaithful. He's coming to save them. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. The whole critter thing is over. The last sacrifice, Jesus Christ, is here. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's over. We've got this new thing. See how God treats people who repent? He gives them life. He calls them to himself. He makes them his own. Those who turn to him, he saves What did it say about these unfaithful people? For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This word remember has a particular connotation in the Hebrew and it means like acting on it. So it's not that the omnipotent, omnipresent God of the universe gives himself amnesia, amnesia. He sure doesn't give himself uneasy either, because I don't even sure what that is. But it's not that he doesn't remember. It's that everything we've ever done is borne on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, and by his stripes we're healed. So he doesn't act on him, because he has. Because of Jesus Christ, everything that needed to happen to deal, because he's right and just and perfect, he doesn't sweep things under the rug, Right? He doesn't just let it go. Because that's not just. He deals with it. On the cross of Jesus Christ, he deals with it. And so he can say, your sin is as far as the east is from the west. You're pardoned. You're forgiven. You're washed clean. You're new. For I'll be merciful towards their iniquities. And I'll remember their sins and lost deeds no more. The problem with the old covenant was not God. It was them. It's that they couldn't do it. So he had to come and do it for us. Three observations. To be an Old Testament person and hear these promises of this day, you mean he's going to forget all of this sacrifice stuff we're done here? To think about Ezekiel 36. I'm going to, give, I'm going to take their heart of stone and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within them. Now, in the Old Testament context, you're thinking, Samson, anointed with the spirit, doing crazy stuff. You're thinking about David writing psalms anointed with the Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit was on certain persons. But as Joel 2 said, in that day of the Lord, the Holy Spirit's going to be on everybody. And in the anticipation and the forward looking and saying, man, what's it going to be like once this Messiah gets here? What's going to happen? And like I said earlier, frankly, it's better for us to live in 24... I mean, you realize that? Like, You can read Daniel and be like, oh, it'd be cool to be in a... I, I maybe it's just me. Like, it'd be cool to be in a furnace and not get burned up. And there's uh, uh, Christophany of Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, here in this furnace with me. Hey, there's lions napping. This is cool. This is 
that it's better to be a plumber in Seattle in 2014. It's better to be a software engineer in Seattle in 2014. Uh, it's better to be at the grocery store in Seattle in 2014, loved by Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit, than it is to be in any of those extraordinary circumstances. Just for the record, I also think God does extraordinary things in this time and in this place. Just saying. But that your day-to-day here in 2014 with Jesus is better. And you are living the thing they were looking forward to. The other thing is in all this, in all this, we're called to so much that your job isn't your own, it's for the glory of Jesus Christ, that diapers are for the worship of Jesus, whether you're changing them or buying them, right? That your kids aren't just there for you to shape into little yous, your kids are there to point to Jesus. To always be patient and kind and never, ever, ever get frustrated ever with anybody. To love them and serve them. To, uh, as a husband, die to yourself and live to Christ and Wash your wife in the word and never be selfish and never put your sleep in time ahead of your pregnant wife's sleep in time or, or, or to ever feel inconvenienced uh, at 5.30 in the morning when you get up too early or whatever you might put in the blank to do that selfishly and per- selflessly and perfectly as Jesus does it. Our job is to tell our neighbors the good news of Jesus Christ, not just be their buddies, but to tell them that Jesus saves sinners to life. Here's the thing about all of those things. On our own, by ourselves, that is impossible. And yet Jesus Christ has given us what we need. He's given us his word and he's given us his spirit because I can't save my neighbors. I can talk to them about Jesus, but if they get saved, who showed them him? That him is Christ in this case. He did. And if my children follow Jesus, and if Jesus allows me to serve my children well, that's his empowering work, that's uh, that's an evidence of grace in my life that he moved in big ways. Thank you, Jesus. That if I can put my stuff aside and just serve and love my wife just fully and put her needs ahead of mine all the time, that's the work of the Spirit. That's God at work in my life. That's not me white-knuckling it, because you can only white-knuckle it so long. You can only do the push-ups for it so long. You can only jumping jack your way into this stuff so long. We are needy, and we need Him, and He moves in our life, and He does it. New Covenant saints. Yeah, that faithfulness is impossible on our own, but with Him, all things are possible. And finally, in all this, All of these new covenant promises for us as the people of God just point to the reality of life in abundance. Life in Jesus, because he gives us the joy of turning to him and turning from other things. When you're serving in the name of Jesus Christ, it's not to give yourself the parade, but man, is it a good time. And sometimes it's not a good time, but usually when you're done, you're like, that was a good time. God God moved he let me share the gospel with my coworker. He let me serve that person in need. He let me invite that person into my community. He let me invite that person into my family. And that's what he did. And he's awesome. I'm not saying it's going to be, uh, you know, wine and roses all the time. Because I listen to too much country music. But nonetheless, it's a gift to be used by God in this dark, dark world to be light in the darkness. And he does that through us. He gives life 
All this is life and life in abundance. And if you don't know him, he's here to give you life. We turn from our sin and we turn to him. There's nothing we can do to earn it. He gives us life. And if you're his, don't turn to morality and certainly don't turn to wiling out. Don't turn to idolatry. Turn to him because he's there to give you life. For us to enjoy him, to know him, to love him. It's a gift and it's a lot of fun. Fun? It's glorious. It's more than fun. It's not fun. We count it as a joy in our trials. There's something, there's something profound and beautiful. Only, only people who've been there can understand when you say, I know that was horrible and I would never, ever want to do that again. And look at how mighty God blessed and gave abundant life through it. Let's pray. Jesus, we are yours. You are more faithful to us than we are to you. You are more gracious to us than we are to others. I have fallen short. There's things I should have done. There's things that I took parade credit for. There were good godly things to do, but I don't need a cookie for them. I get you for them. There's things I shouldn't have done in my life. And you remember those no more. And you give me life and you call me a child. And you do that for us who love you. And help us to respond to this good news and your grace and your wonder by loving you and loving other people. Being so excited and satiated by you and your beauty and your goodness, Jesus. That we'd find our ultimate contentment and fulfillment in you. In the new covenant you've made with us. And help us to live Don't let us dwell in the muck, but live in the light that you've gotten us to. You saved us from the muck to the light and help us to live, Lord, in the light. Help us to celebrate in the light. Help us not to focus on our own navels, but to focus on you and your goodness, Jesus Christ, and all that you're doing. Please save our city. Please move here in a big way. Please help us to love you and serve you more every day, Jesus. We love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.